0: be seated. If you have a Bible this morning uh, you can turn with it or in it to Romans chapter 5 and uh, I'm taking a little bit of uh, a longer moment to spend in Romans 5 because during my study of the passage In particular, in the original language, I was impressed with the number of words or family of words that were used in this passage related to the subject of grace. And Romans chapter 5 is literally loaded with terms related to grace. And so with that said, after having looked at it and preached through it, Um, I thought it would be a good idea for us to take at least one Sunday to think about uh, the grace of God together. And grace is one of those words like love or faith or mother or father. We all know what it is, but we're hard-pressed to define it in a tangible way where we can get it. And so the theme of this message today is getting grace but by getting here i mean understanding it like i get it rather than receiving it we will talk about receiving it but we're also going to talk about do you really get it do you really understand what it means to be saved by grace i would argue uh, up to 75, maybe even 90% of people who go to church have no idea what grace means. No idea. And so they know what they've been taught, but they don't really, it doesn't really penetrate. Uh, I like to drench myself occasionally in everything the scripture has to say about the grace of God. And so you'll participate with me a little bit in that today as we take our time Uh, to look at this um, subject that I think is so important. Hear now the word of the Lord as we are in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 20. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I do pray today as we open up your word that your Holy Spirit would come and open up our hearts and soften them to be responsive and receptive to what we will hear today from your word, how we ask you to uh, show us uh, insight and truth and deepen our understanding of this most wonderful truth that any of us could ever know or experience in our lives. And so we pray this, believing that you will work and bring glory to yourself. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. It was C.S. Lewis who was attending a meeting during a British conference on comparative religions experts from around the world debated what if any belief was unique to the Christian faith. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. He said, Lewis said, what's all the rumpus about? And uh, during uh, the time They finally told him. They began uh, discussing and continuing the discussion, and and they said, well, what is the most distinctive, unique truth to the Christian faith? And C.S. Lewis said, that's easy, grace. No other religion in the world or among the cults of the world have any idea what grace is. It's always a matter of climbing the ladder to reach whatever they conceive of or believe is God. It's always man moving to God, whereas Christianity is God coming to man and stooping toward man to rescue him. And that is the uniqueness of the Christian faith, that we believe in something called grace. And so three things I want us to think about today. First, what grace is. Number two, what grace uh, matters, or why grace matters so much to us as believers. And thirdly, how we get grace. How do we get it? How do we increase our understanding of it and better grasp the beauty and truth of the grace of God? Grace changes everything once you understand it. The outrageousness of God's indiscriminating grace always gets people a little bit stirred up. That's because real grace is simply inexplicable. It is inappropriate to many people, out of the box, out of bounds, offensive, excessive, outrageous, scandalous, and perhaps most of all given to the wrong people and all of those things. Grace, however, is the most important concept in the Bible. In Christianity and in the world. It is most clearly expressed in the promises God has revealed to us in Scripture and that are embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The deepest message of the ministry of Jesus and the entire Bible is the grace of God to sinners and sufferers. That is the essential message of the Bible from creation to the new creation, from Genesis 1 to the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, between those two uh, amazing chapters in the Bible is is compressed into the pages of the Bible the doctrine of the grace of God. It's all about grace. Grace is one of those concepts in the Bible that you don't see immediately reading through it, but once you do see it, you see it everywhere. It's everywhere, it's all over the place. Um, I did a little research and study on how many times uh, the word grace is used in the Bible. In the Hebrew language, the word one of the words for grace is the word hen or henna, not red hair dye. But Hebrew, henna. And henna means uh, favor shown from a superior to an inferior. That's used 206 times in the Old Testament, 206. There's another word you might be more familiar with in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, and it's the word kesed. And kesed means loyal, steadfast, love, grace, faithfulness, all of those things. That's used 260 times. In the Old Testament. 460 times in the Old Testament words for grace are used in 39 books. That's a lot, right? In the New Testament the word is charis and it's used 297 times in the Bible. How can we read the Bible and miss it? Because we're reading the Bible through lenses that have not yet understood what this powerful truth is. And my job today, my goal My heart's desire is to communicate to you and help you see this in a little bit more powerful way. About grace, you can call it what you want to, you can categorize it, you can vivisect it, you can qualify it, you can quantify it, or dismiss it, and none of it will make grace anything other than precisely what grace is. It is audacious, it is unwarranted, and it is unlimited. In English the word grace has to do with charm or elegance or beauty or attractiveness. And if you're from the south it's what you say before you eat, grace. But in the Bible it means something a little bit different. In fact, scripture tells us that grace isn't a personal virtue at all. It is undeserved favor lavished on an inferior by a superior. Grace is unmerited favor. You cannot deserve grace. That's an oxymoron. You cannot deserve grace by its very nature. It is undeserved favor or a kindly disposition that leads to acts of kindness. The grace of God given to us, J. Gresham Machin writes, The very center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God. The grace of God, which depends not one whit upon anything that is in man, but is absolutely undeserved, resistless, and sovereign. Christian experience depends for its depth and for power upon the way in which this blessed doctrine is cherished in the depths of the heart. The center of the Bible, the center of Christianity, is found in grace and the grace of God. And the necessary corollary of grace is salvation through faith alone. Now, there is, in the Bible, a lot of people look at the Bible different ways. I understand that. Some people look at the Bible as a manual for living. That is, it provides a blueprint. If you do these things correctly, then you will experience some sort of salvation and a higher quality of life. Other people look at the Bible, not so much as a manual, but as a um, directory on how to practically live life. And the Bible has those things in it. But that's not the primary, ultimate, quintessential message of the Bible is grace. And yet, how little we conceive of that sometimes. Um, How little grace has power over us. Grace is the love of God shown to unlovely people, the peace of God given to restless people, and the unmerited favor of God. Others have defined grace wonderfully. Grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Grace is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him, shaking their puny fist in his face. Grace is unconditional love toward a person who could never deserve it. Grace is the most needed and best understood in the midst of sin, suffering, and brokenness. The only way that grace will ever be meaningful to us as people is after we presuppose what the Bible says about human nature. All of us are born in sin. That is, we have a sinful disposition, a sinful heart, a heart that rebels against the authority of God. We're sinful people, we're broken people, we're people who turn our backs, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned away from the Lord and the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all, Isaiah says. But we're all sinful people, which takes away any kind of merit before God, which takes away God owing us anything. I guess through Thanksgiving my ear got bigger or littler one. I don't know. Too much turkey maybe. But that's what grace is. It's amazing. It's astounding. It's the most needed and best understood in the midst of sin and suffering and brokenness. Richard Lovelace, the great church historian from Gordon-Conwell Seminary, said it years ago, until people know how holy God is, until they have some concept of the absolute purity and the absolute beauty and the absolute glory of God that Isaiah saw when it was lifted up in the temple and he fell before that demonstration of the glory of God, and he became undone. He almost disintegrated in the presence of the beauty of holiness, and he recognized he was a man of sinful lips. He was called to be a prophet, and the very essence of what he was was being destroyed by his own sin. And God showed it to him, and that's when grace becomes a reality for us. If you have no acquaintance for your sin, of your sin, you have no uh, understanding of the great holiness of our God. Then what do you need grace for? You're doing fine on your own. At least you think you are, but you're in a process of destruction, and that's what the Bible teaches. And so condemnation comes by merit, salvation comes only by grace. Condemnation is earned by us. Salvation is a gift to us. That is why everyone wants and needs grace. Judgment kills, only grace makes alive. The shorthand for grace is mercy, not merit. Now we live in a meritocracy, or at least we used to. And a meritocracy is you earn everything you get. You deserve it because you work for it, you put in the time, you got whatever was required of you to be qualified to do whatever you want to do, and you do it for that reason. But that's not grace. Grace is the opposite of that. Judgment uh, comes by our own efforts. The shorthand for grace is mercy, not merit. Grace is getting what you don't deserve and not getting what you do deserve. Karma is all about getting what you deserve. Christianity teaches that getting what you deserve is death with no hope of resurrection. Grace is the opposite of karma. Next time anybody tells you, well, it's karma happening to you, say, no, I am a recipient of grace. I get undeserved favor from the the one who matters the most in the universe. I receive favor. My wife was telling me the story yesterday of looking for a parking place in a very crowded parking lot. And so she saw a place like it happened right upon it and she saw a woman who also saw it at the same time as she and so she stepped on the pedal, was flying around the corner trying to get up and cut in front of my wife and take this parking place. Now most of you may think that my wife is incredibly passive (laughs) and gentle. She's a wonderful woman, but she yanked into that parking place. And as they were walking out and going into the shopping center, the woman said to her, Karma karma, will get you. And my wife says back to her, Karma is the reason I got the parking place. <laughs> I said, didn't you throw a little grace on top of that too? But grace is not karma. It's not good karma. Karma is getting what you deserve. While everyone desperately needs um, grace, grace is not about us. Grace is fundamentally a word about God. His uncoerced initiative, pervasive and extravagant demonstration of care and favor. Michael Horton writes, in grace, God gives nothing less than himself Grace is not a third thing or substance mediating between God and sinners, but is Jesus Christ in redeeming action. That's what grace is. Jesus Christ in redeeming action. Grace is as complete as God himself and expresses the quality of his own character. Grace is the very essence of the being of God. God himself is in it. He reveals his very essence in this streaming forth of grace. God's actions of grace are inexhaustible. He never runs out of it. You can't out the grace of God. He never runs out. It's inexhaustible. That is why we find such superlative adjectives used often by the Apostle Paul when he is describing grace. He will call it the abundance of grace, sufficient grace, surpassing riches of his grace, the abundance grace. In the Christian tradition there are many adjectives that have accompanied the word grace. Amazing, we sing that song. Amazing grace until we get to the part uh, on a wretch like me. A lot of people don't like uh, that it says wretch in there. They think it's a nice little ditty and it's a good folk song. And I think even you too has sung it and others, and that's fine, but they don't like that wretch part. But grace ain't grace till you know you're a wretch. It just isn't. It just isn't. As long as you think well of yourself, and, and you know, I know people, you know people, you, I hope you know yourself, and I hope I know myself, but we all want people to think well of us. We all want, you know, and and the life that we live is striving to get people to think well of ourselves. And that's contrary to the idea of grace. We need to think realistically about ourselves. And we need the grace of God more than we need the next breath we're going to take. The grace of God is everything for us. And so grace is amazing, free, scandalous, surprising, special, inexhaustible, incalculable, wondrous, mysterious, overflowing, abundant, irresistible, costly, extravagant, and all the more. That's what grace is. I like John Calvin's definition of it. He called grace gratuitous grace, and the word gratuitous means something that is not called for or really is utterly uncalled for. When you look at the recipient of the grace, you can't find any reason in them why God would ever give it to them. When you watch their life, you can't find any reason watching them why God would ever uh, display his kindness and his long-suffering patience and his presence entering their lives. You look at them and you can't add it up and that's what makes grace so amazing. And that's what made religious people so infuriated with Jesus. They didn't like Jesus at all. You do understand that. They're the ones that killed him. And they killed him why? Because of his message of grace. I have a very good friend who planted a church right in the middle of the Bible Belt. And I said uh, his name was Shane. Shane. I said, Shane, how's it going preaching the gospel in the Bible Belt? And he leaned up to me and he said, I had no idea how many people in the Bible Belt hate the gospel. How many people in the Bible Belt hate grace? And I said, well, I can imagine it. I've lived there before. I've known a few people like that. And it it was an astonishing statement in many ways. But Calvin goes on to say, we make the foundation of faith the gratuitous promise because in it, faith properly consists. Faith begins with the promise, rests in it, and ends in it. In Calvin's theology, the knowledge of God the Redeemer focuses on the gratuitous promise as the main theme of Scripture. That is the promise that is totally uncalled for, and that's the mercy and grace of God to sinners. God's good pleasure displayed. God loves us with a gratuitous grace, the only kind there is. God's grace is unconditional and unconditioned god is the one who lives in freedom unconditional love is a difficult concept to wrap your mind around Uh, how is it possible to love someone without condition many of us think whether we admit it or not that there's got to be some breaking point with god where he gives up on us even if we uh uh, unsuccessfully avoid believing this fallacy others uh overzealous cries still reach our ears certainly there must be some sin or amount of sin that is just too much." And when somebody begins to think that way they can't think right or, lo- or biblically. Uh, the counterintuitive logic of Scripture is, you know, one wise wag said God created us in His image. It's called the Imago Dei in Scripture. We are created in God's image, and we are made in likeness uh, to him. We are not God, certainly. We're creatures. But we are made in his image to know him and to love him and to relate to him. But here's the problem sin creates in us. We turn around and do God a favor by making him over into our image. God is not like us. He's God, and he's filled with grace, filled with it. You can't conceive of it. You can't wrap your mind around that concept. So unmerited favor for undeserving sinners is never, ever comfortable. That's why religion tries to domesticate grace. The grace from the gospel of Jesus Christ is the end, as it were, of religion. Christianity, however, is a prof- in a profound sense, the end of all religion. Religion is needed where there's a wall of separation between God and man. But Christ, who is both God and man, has broken down that wall between uh, man and God. He has an- inaugurated a new life, not a new religion. Robert Capon makes a similar point. Christianity is not a religion. It is the proclamation of the end of religion. Religion is a human activity dedicated to the uh, job of reconciling God to humanity and humanity to itself. The gospel, however, the really good news is of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the astonishing announcement that God has done the whole work of reconciliation without a scrap of human assistance. It is the bizarre proclamation that religion is over, period. I told you as uh, I often go back to my hometown to visit family, and my brother knows everybody in my hometown. That's just the kind of person he is. So we're out walking around the town square and he'll see somebody and that I knew and he knows and you know, I can't hardly remember them that well and lived there in 40 something years. But anyway, I meet the person. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'll ask me this every single time, Tim, are you still religious? because they've heard about me from this little bitty small southern town living in Las Vegas preaching. They all think i got a tent down on the strip. <laughs> you know, and I'm doing evangel, evangelism every day down there in that tent on the strip. And they said, are you still religious or have you come to your senses? That's what they say. That's what they mean. And I said, I've never been less religious than I am right now. Oh, did you quit? Are you normal? Are you back back to being one of us?" And I'll say, no, there's something called grace, and grace destroys religion, properly understood. Religion is man's effort to reach God. Grace is God's accomplishment of reaching us with his goodness, love, power, holiness, truth, and ultimately grace. It's God calling us to himself. Now, I'm looking at the time, and let's move on. Okay. Um, Again, when we consider grace and religion, there's a thousand things that could be said here. Um, T.F. Torrance explained the contrast this way when talking about religion trying to domesticate grace. Grace is costly to man because it lays the axe to the root of all his cherished power, all his cherished possessions, and all of his achievements, not the least in the realm of his religion. For it is in religion that man's self-justification may reach its supreme and most subtle form. Religion can be a supreme form taken by human sin. The French reformer Jacques Ellul also says, grace is the hardest thing for us to be reconciled to. Because it implies the renouncing of our pretensions, our powers, our pomp, and circumstance. It is the opposite of everything our religious sentiments are looking for. Grace reveals our natural pride of self-sufficiency as well as the pride of a spiritual progression. Nothing is more devastating to spiritual pride than grace. Therefore, our response to God's grace includes the recognition of our sinfulness and the rejection of all confidence in ourselves and our abilities." That's grace. That's grace. And that's amazing grace. Unmerited favor for undeserving sinners is never ever comfortable To most people. That is why religion always tries to domesticate, to tame, to trim back the idea of grace. For for most religious people, grace is the old uh, Ringo Starr songs, I get by with a little help from my friends. And so here's what most people think grace is. This is what I thought it is growing up in church all my life. I thought grace was this, Tim, do the best you can. Try to be the best person you can. Try to pray. Try to read your Bible. Be faithful in church attendance. Do the best you can. And when you die, God will make up the difference by giving you grace. That's a lie. That is a bald-faced lie. No. Grace doesn't make up any difference. It is the difference. You will never have anything any kind of relationship with God based upon anything you can do or accrue or accomplish or achieve. It's all gift. Now, immediately when people hear that kind of language, they do what everybody does when they hear that kind of language. Well, then if that's true, I can just live like I want to. If God just accepts me wholly and completely uh, as one who is unworthy and one who is sinful and he forgives my sin and he gives me the righteousness of Jesus Christ as my own, then what would keep me from running away and acting crazy and just living like a, a heathen? And you can certainly do that. Paul warns us of that in chapter 6. Next week we'll talk about that. But when you truly get grace, that's not your thought. You fall in love. Once you understand God's acceptance of you, it changes your heart inside out. It melts it. It transforms it. It enlarges it. It causes it to hunger and thirst for more. Of righteousness hunger and thirst more for the grace of god grace truly understood and appropriated doesn't give you license to sin it gives you the desire to live in a pleasing manner for one who's been so gracious to you how can you walk away from someone doing that for you and not want to live with all of your heart for them for all of eternity now do people abuse it of course they do But that doesn't mean it's not true. People abuse all kinds of truth, and that's true in the realm of grace. Now, again, grace is the end of religion because the secured promise of the gospel frees us from the supposed promises of our religious self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and self-justification. But let's get down to the final thing, a couple of things I want to say. And the first one is, why does grace matter to us? Grace is not an abstract principle, but a reality of our life with God. Grace must find expression in life. Otherwise, it is not grace. Let me say that again. Grace must find expression in life, otherwise it's not grace. And you can't be assured that God's grace will uh, embed itself in the inner life in profound ways. That is simply how the Holy Spirit works. Here's what I want to say to you. If you have been grasped by grace and you are beginning to grasp grace, Is it making you a more gracious person? Now, I'll tell you a Christian pastime that I see often and have indulged in myself, and that's judging other people and condemning other people. You know why we do that? Because it feels so good. Doesn't it feel good sometimes to be better than other people? Doesn't it feel good to feel justified in myself? that I would never stoop to be that low? I would never do anything like that? Hush your mouth. As my mother used to say, hush your mouth. We are masters at judging and condemning. Somebody doesn't live up to our convictions or our standards, we notice it. We check it. It's on our list. Checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty because that makes me feel more confirmed in that lifelong effort of self-justification but once you get grace grace gets you and it takes away that condemning nature of our hearts why strive to be good you already know you're not why, why do I care what, as Paul says, I don't care what you say about me. I don't care how you judge me. I don't even care about my own judgment of myself. There's only one person whose judgment matters, and that's God, and he said, if I stop relying on myself, turn away from all my self-justification projects, and come with an empty hand and fall at his feet, I am forever beautiful and righteous in his sight. So what do I need to condemn anybody for? There go I. I think it was Roland Hill, the great British evangelist, was standing on a hill preaching, and they were hauling somebody, I guess, to the Tower of London or somewhere to execute them, and everybody in the crowd turns to watch that, and Hill is the great evangelist, says, There go I, but for what? Grace of God. There go out for the great. Oh, come on. If there were no restraints. Nobody would ever find out. Nobody would ever see. Nobody would ever know. What would you do? And that's where you've got to begin to understand that when you receive the grace of God, it makes you a more gracious person. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have any standards, and it doesn't mean that you don't, um, uh, you know, are careful not to put your children in the hands of a child abuser or other people that are dangerous. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying in the core of your being. You understand that you are what you are by the grace of God. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. But his grace was given to me. I accomplished more than all of them. Yet not I, but what? The grace of God. Paul starts with grace, ends with grace, talks about his activity in the middle. It doesn't matter how much I've done as an apostle, how much I've suffered, how many biblical books I've written, how many times I've preached the gospel uh, from very important places in the Mediterranean world. None of that matters because I'm not the great person here. The great person here is our Lord Jesus Christ, and I am what I am by his grace. Do you believe that about yourself? So grace matters to us because, number one, it's the only way we can have a relationship with God, but grace is given to us to cause us to become more gracious toward others. We begin to glorify God by resembling him, And the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by the way, is the one who opens our eyes to be able to see grace and understand grace at all. He does something called regeneration. That is, he enters us and makes us alive. We were dead in trespasses and sin. We walked according to the course of the world. We were under the authority of the Spirit, of the power of the air, the devil. And when the Holy Spirit came, he quickened us. He made us alive. He resurrected us spiritually, all by grace. And we're new people. But we still have that old Adam hanging on our backs as we walk around. And it's a struggle. But that's how you get grace. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit. But you get it through the empty hand of faith. And then it begins to trickle down into the rest of your life. Have you got a graceless marriage? Are you mad at your partner today? Or angry with them or haven't spoken to them in two or three days because they hurt your feelings or said something they shouldn't have said? or did something you asked them not to do ever, and you're just harboring in your heart this hardness, this resentment, this coldness, this hate towards your partner, how gracious of you. Every time I want to do it and hang on to it, the Holy Spirit always goes, yeah, it's a good thing Jesus is not that way with you. Some of you just might need to forgive each other. Let it go. Now, I know a lot of you have been hurt a lot. I know that. I don't minimize that it's real and it hurts, but it will destroy you if you don't let it go. And so that's important in getting grace is understanding grace relationally. Do you know how to show your children grace? Now, Martin Luther said it's important to teach your children the law. The Ten Commandments. He said, yes, teach them the law of God so it'll drive them to Christ as soon as they're old enough. But do you ever catch them in a disobedient act and go buy them an ice cream cone? My dad did that one time. We did something. He caught us. You could tell. His ears were red. I knew we're going to die. So my dad drove a truck. He worked for the power company. And it had these uh, compartments on the side that you could sit on and be up pretty high in the back of the truck. He said, get in a truck. And I looked at my brother and said, he's going to take us to the city dump. <laughs> he's going to leave us. You know where he took us? To the Dairy Castle. Every kid in my town knew where the Dairy Castle was. Bought my favorite thing, an ice cream cone dipped in chocolate. I felt guilty eating it the whole time. I said, another shoe's going to drop here. <laughs> and about the time I really enjoy this, he's going to tear me up. He never did. So we asked him, we couldn't stand it any longer, what we, what, what's the punishment going to be? He said, once in a while, you need to know what the grace of God is. It's God's favor shown to people who don't deserve it. And he said, you don't and I don't. My dad came in to he- hear me preach, first time I ever preached in my life. And I preached my little heart out, but it was law, 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 law. I mean, law. And uh, on the way out, these rural people who were such sweet, good, salt of the earth people came out and said, Preacher, you really preached today? said, You stepped all over my toes. And I thought, Well, that's my job. I'm supposed to step on toes. My daddy came and looked me in the eye and said, You did a good job of getting me lost. You did a lousy job of getting me saved. I said, What are you talking about? He said, Grace. 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 And so, one of the things that we're committed to as a session and the leadership of Spring Meadows Church is to create a culture of grace in this church, a culture of grace, a culture of the gospel, not where we're sitting around beating our chest, cheering about how reformed we are, which is a good thing, but we don't want to have some kind of, you know, campfire with men taking their shirts off, beating their chest, saying we're reformed. We're not doing that. If you're looking for that, you're in the wrong place. We want to create a culture of grace toward people, Because people who are going to walk through these doors may be in real trouble, have real struggles, and they're scared to death to let anybody know because they think we're good. They think we don't have any problems, we don't have any trouble. And so one of our goals is to do that. I want to tell you something. It's easier to pastor a church full of Pharisees. Pharisees are neat, clean, they tithe. You know, they don't seem to have any problems or trouble. Once you start preaching the gospel, the Pharisees leave. And the messy people come in. But look at who Jesus spent his time with. Who did Jesus, who was he known to hang out with? Sinners, prostitutes, despicable people, deplorable ones. That's who Jesus hang out, hung out with. And he was was categorically smashed for it by the religious elite of his day. So in conclusion, have you received the grace of God? Are you looking for grace and grace alone to define your relationship with God and who you are? And if you're doing well in the Christian life, praise the Lord. His grace is strong on your behalf. If you're suffering now and you have no strength and you're weak, praise the Lord. The grace of God will sustain you. The grace of God is everything to you. So I hope this gives you just a small sketch and etch of what the grace of God is. I wouldn't be a preacher for a minute if I didn't know about the grace of God. This would be the, it's a hard job anyway, but it'd be a really hard job if you didn't have grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what we've heard today. We thank you for the beauty of the truth. And we pray that we would begin to grow in our ability to grasp this, that it might become part of who we are. And now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give motivated strictly by your grace. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.